This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. with another edition of the Ben Domenech Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one. Today I have a conversation for you with Eli Lake, who you can follow on Twitter, at Eli Lake. He is the host of the Re-Education Podcast, a contributing editor at Commentary Magazine, and a fellow at the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. He's uh, someone who has paid attention to everything related to the Steele dossier, the Russia investigation, uh, the impeachments of Donald Trump, and of course this most recent raid on Mar-a-Lago. He's someone who has become a real critic of the FBI in a lot of different circumstances, uh, who has uh, welcomed the idea of reforming the institution. And he gives us his perspective, guiding us through the different scandals and uh, and affronts that the FBI has really engaged in over recent years, uh, which have raised the, the real concerns of a number of members of Congress on the Republican side. My conversation with Eli Lake, coming up next. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Eli Lake, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, thanks for having me. So I have listened to you with interest over the past couple of weeks unpack uh, for a, a number of different folks and on your own podcast uh, the happenings that went down in Mar-a-Lago and some of the uh, things that you took away from uh, the experience of paying attention to everything that the FBI has been doing in recent years uh, from, let's say, a, a skeptical perspective uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the messaging that they've been handing out. And I wanted to give our listeners a chance to hear your take on all of that. Let me maybe step back for a moment and, and just sort of get your perspective on this. As someone who, you know, sort of has covered the, not just the intelligence community, but uh, the uh, law enforcement community from a number of different perspectives over the years. Was there a certain point where you started to feel like things had shifted in the FBI, where perhaps some of the critiques that were being lodged against them were no longer coming from the realm of conspiracy, but perhaps were, you know, something that needed to be taken a little more seriously when it came to accusations of partisanship or the like? Well, for me, I think that would be, um, which might be an obscure story, but I think is a very important one. It has to do with what was sometimes known shorthand as the Nunes memo, which was the memo of 
mm-hmm. the former Republican chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, uh, and it was specifically about the evidence presented to a secret surveillance court known as the FISA court by the FBI to obtain uh, a warrant and then three subsequent renewals of a warrant to surveil Carter Page. Now, the first two, two and a half, maybe even three years of the Trump administration, you had a, you know, sort of drumbeat of stories about Carter Page where he was basically being accused of being a spy when it was leaked, when it was determined that he that there was a surveillance warrant for his communications that was taken as further confirmation of it. Now, in the world of intelligence and reporting on intelligence, there's going to be bum steers. There's going to be bad info. There's oftentimes you have to rely on anonymous sources. And, uh, you know, as, as James Jesus Angleton once said, it is a kind of a wilderness of mirrors and you have to, it's, it's a tougher beat than other things. However, Mm -hmm. um, there was such pushback, not just from the Democrats, but from the FBI itself, that Nunes was simultaneously in this memo that he sought the declassification of going to gravely injure national security, harm American national security, but also that he was cherry picking information and presenting a false impression. Because what Nunes, at the end of the day, the central claim of what he said was that the FBI used unvetted opposition research that was generated by the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 to get a secret court to approve the kind of surveillance, the technical spying on a former advisor of Donald Trump's campaign, which is, in my view, a devastating and serious, serious charge. Mm. But what you had at that moment was... The FBI itself saying, this is all wrong. And then you sort of saw at that time, if you remember, this is like in uh, early 2019, and it was also in 2018, where there were a number of former officials who have a lot of credibility, especially in the mainstream media, who were then backing up this as saying, this is so dangerous. It's so wrong. You know, Nunes is in it. It's so dishonest. And they were just taking this line. And then we find out at the end of 2019, because of uh, the Justice Department's Inspector General Michael Horowitz, that not only was Nunes right, it was worse than we thought, that the FBI not only used this, what's known as the Steele dossier, which we can talk about, to get the warrant, but they also had information. They interviewed his subsource, who then disavowed a lot of the claims that showed that there were a lot of problems with it and continued to submit the original dossier as evidence for the renewal of that surveillance warrant, which if you think about, so there's two things. One is that Nunes was right that they used partisan opposition research kind of entered into this, what is supposed to be an independent insulated from political process of the FBI to spy on, somebody who was in the Trump campaign, and because of the way these things work, you could get access to other people who were in the Trump campaign. That's a complicated thing we don't have to get into. But then they 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 had put up a, a smokescreen, a kind of, you know, they, they then they, they lied, you know, when this was a political showdown about declassifying the original memo. And, you know, I have come to expect people like Adam Schiff, the current chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, to be dishonest and, you know, complete partisan hack. 
But I was really surprised that Christopher Ray's FBI would be doing that as well. Mm-hmm. So that for me was a moment. And then if you read the entire Horowitz report, it's not just about the mistakes that they made in the FISA court. It's they, they, they had extraordinarily intrusive tactics they used against the Trump campaign for what I still think is, you know, you know, he clears them for the opening of the original investigation the technical thing, but they still decided to use confidential informants, basically running spies against, you know, their targeted individuals. And for what? And that this allegation was kept open. So that was the Horowitz report. I mean, I was always skeptical. I mean, I, I, I wrote originally that I thought that the circumstances of the firing of Michael Flynn were dodgy. I was always not necessarily with the pack on it, but the it was that Inspector General's report that I would say really kind of put me into the camp of uh, I'm not going to believe it until like, you know, I, I, I don't just take everything you say as, uh, you know, I don't trust everything you say off the bat. So that's that's like probably what it was. I want to have you work your thoughts for a moment. Yeah. When was the first time that you heard something just in the course of covering uh uh, politics and the 2016 Trump campaign. When was the first time that you heard something that later showed up or was featured as an aspect of the Steele dossier? But, so you mean like when did I hear a rumor of something and then it, that rumor, I saw it later? A, a piece of gossip and then later found out, oh, this is part of that. Well, I mean... During I, I was against Trump in 2016 as a mm-hmm. columnist, and I had written stories that I still stand. I written columns, a column I still stand by about Paul Manafort called Trump just hired his next scandal, which has been mm-hmm. totally borne out. But what's interesting, I'll tell you, this is very interesting, Ben. All the stuff about Manafort, which was true and well-known. I had covered Manafort earlier. Manafort was involved in... He was a known um, quantity man. I was there. I was absolutely. in the green room on Fox News Sunday, the day that he started, like his first media appearance as the, uh, as right. the campaign head. So, yeah, no, he I know was, what you He was a known about. quantity, and he was known to represent the deposed uh, president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. He was very close with Yanukovych. And that was known before Maidan Square in 2014. And I had covered this because I, you know, cover foreign affairs and stuff like that. So I'd known who Manafort was. And then, you know, he has a rap sheet that goes back to the 80s and you can find all that. So that column I w- was, was right. But here's the interesting thing. None of the stuff that was true about Manafort was in the Steele dossier. Well, that's interesting. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because the people who put together the Steele dossier, Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele, the former MI6 agent, had been working for a Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska, who was basically using their research skills or whatever they are selling to find, to get money back that Paul Manafort had owed at Deripaska. And all of this, by the way, is in a much-cited report from the Senate Intelligence Committee. It's their fifth volume on this, and it's... and and. Uh, Resistance types will always cite elements of this report, but they never get around to the section on who the people were actually working for. So just to sort of give it another mm-hmm. kind of wrinkle on this, if you remember in 2017, a huge story was this Trump Tower meeting with a lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya. It was the biggest thing in the world. 
you know, I mean, there's a whole lot of elements of it. Trump dictates a press release, which turns out to be, I mean, false. And everybody's like, this is it. The walls are closing in, yada, yada, yada. Okay, Natalia Veselnaskaya had a far more substantial relationship. She had a 30-minute meeting with Jared Kushner and uh, who else? Jared Kushner and Manafort and other people in the campaign in like June of 2016. She had a two or three year working relation where she paid Fusion GPS. These are the people that put together the opposition research dossier known as the Steele dossier for the Clinton campaign. She was literally working with them. They, she was a client of Fusion GPS who were used to who basically were lobbying in Washington part of an information campaign to roll back these sanctions known as the Magnitsky sanctions, which were, you know, going after senior Russian officials for the uh, sensibly for lots of human rights violations, but initially the murder of this lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky. Now, the, I bring all of this up because that was a part of the story that was always missing at the time, which is that both parties, both campaigns kind of had these weird connections to Russia, if you really wanted to do that. And the, and the standard of kind of going after Trump was never applied to Clinton. And we and we now are finding out more of it because of people like John Durham, who's a special counsel. But that sort of stuff, I was on my radar at the time. I was like, well, wait a second. I mean, you know, even if you go back to Manafort, Manafort shared a contract to lobby for Yanukovych that was not registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, a law that was not criminally enforced until the Trump years, but then was turned around by Andrew Weissman, who was a, one of the you know, lawyers on the Mueller team, to squeeze people to turn them into cooperating witnesses against, ultimately, I would imagine, Trump. So instead, what they did is they filed in something called the Lobbying Disclosure Act. And I know this sounds a little bit far afield, but believe me, it's very relevant because it shows this sort of double standard, which I think drives us both nuts. Okay, so Manafort had shared the lobbying contract for Yanukovych, which technically ran afoul of the foreign agent's law, with Tony Podesta, the brother of John Podesta, and his lobbying shop. Now, they were investigated, and ultimately the Podesta group had to show down, but he was never in any, he was never charged. He was never, there's not even anything like that. Now, there was one Democrat, Greg Craig, who was prosecuted. The government lost that case. But mainly, the, it was, the attention was against the Republicans. They threatened Mike Flynn with Farah. They threatened, you know, Rick Gates. They threatened Manafort. But what about the more establishment Republicans who also shared it with Mercury Group like Vin Weber? So I say, if you're going to go after this stuff, you have to do it consistently. And so that was like another element of it. I'm like, well, okay, you're only going to prosecute. By the way, you're only going to prosecute the foreign agents registration law, which you had no one had prosecuted for like 40 years, at least criminally. And you're only going to do it against people who are in and around Trump. Now, that might make sense if you looked at the Trump investigation the way that you would look at, say, the investigation of La Cosa Nostra's five families, right? So we're going to get it. We're going to get them on anything we can in order to flip witnesses. And we're going to flip the capos so we finally get to the godfather, but this is a guy who was just elected the president of the United States. He's, that's, mm -hmm. So you're treating the president as if he is a mob boss that was effectively based on, like, I can't, the thinnest of rumors and opposition research or whatever that you thought he might have colluded with Russia, which, by the way, they never proved. Mm -hmm. And that that really held his, that what held his presidency hostage for the first two and a half years, and I think is the reason why 
And I try to be pretty measured about this because I am not calling for the abolition of the FBI or defunding the FBI. But I think it's why there are probably millions of American conservatives and Republicans who think to hell with it. Mm -hmm. You know, let's let's start and start again. You know? Yeah. Well, I think part of that, too, is that they haven't been offered any alternative. You know, there's no reform measure. There's no, you know, the, the idea of a church commission is something that not a lot of people even understand. Um, and I, I do want to ask you about that. that that kind of solution-based approach. But but one thing before we get to that is you bring up a very interesting point in the sense that they were treating the president, the recently elected president of the United States, as if he was the head of a mob family where they needed to use everything that they possibly could, you know, the equivalent of parking ticket violations and that kind of thing against lower level people in order to make them flip. And, you know, to me, that aspect of desperation was something that as someone close to DC who has, you know, awareness of Farah as awareness of sort of the way that these lobbying shops work, awareness of kind of the way that these, the, the internal conflicts of people working uh, at odds or even in tandem on various contracts, the whole thing seemed to me to be almost a joke. Like this is, this is ridiculous. Are you actually going to use all of this as justification for, uh, you know, an enormous amount of spying on people at the highest levels of a recently elected government. The whole thing seemed to me on, on the surface to be kind of like, I can't believe they would actually do this. And then to discover both through the memo and uh, that you mentioned and, and others, uh, uh, you know, reporting as well that yes, this is actually what they were doing. It was very disturbing to me uh, and really, you know, shook a lot of my faith in, in the kind of institutions that I think that we need to be able to have faith in uh, as, as protecting us. So for Americans across the country, whether they're, you know, seriously engaged in this story or not, is there a path back to restoring that kind of institutional trust? Because if there isn't, then I can understand why they would basically say, burn the whole place down. Okay, so that's a very good question. There is tech, there is kind of a, a way back. It's like, you know, that's why we have inspector gen inspectors general. When they find really bad stuff, they get it out there. And there should have been... A major political scandal, except it wasn't a political scandal because the Democrats had moved on to the first impeachment, which was about the phone call on Ukraine. And I, I have to say, I'm not rationalizing that. I thought what the president, the president's behavior in that phone call was pretty awful. Didn't think it necessarily met the bar of impeachment. And I didn't think that the Democrats pursued impeachment in a way that was aimed at persuading persuadable Demo uh, Republicans, which would have been the kind of constant, which would have been in keeping with the Constitution of it. But that's mm -hmm. I'm just saying that. We didn't have a moment after that original Horowitz report that would have maybe sort of convinced, I don't know, the, 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 the sort of, you know, elite legal establishment, the political establishment, that there was a huge overreach and that there were huge problems and that this needed to be corrected. Instead, it's been a kind of cover up mode. So the so the one one of the guys who was prosecuted ultimately pleaded guilty uh in in the in the fisa debacle having to do with carter pages someone named kevin kleinsman he's an fbi lawyer who altered evidence when an f when the cia said that page had been a helpful kind of point of contact for them he changed it to say that no the cia doesn't know who this guy is so um basically 
you know, that, that th those little edits were enough to change the actual meaning of, you know, to say the opposite of what was true. Well, he got probation and the District of Columbia bar just reinstated him in good standing. <laughs> so he is able to practice law still, even though he defrauded, along with lots of other people at the FBI and the, who were involved in this FISA warrant, defrauded, defrauded the secret FISA court. And that's in some ways even worse than defrauding a normal court because it has to be secret because this is what grants these surveillance warrants, which you can't have an opposing counsel for. So we, we, we have to rely on the probity and the scruples of the FBI to present all of this information, including information that would undermine their case. And by the way, it's called technical, it's called the Woods Procedure. This is a problem that has plagued the FBI really since the reforms that created the FISA court, because there used to be no process to this. And they have just, they don't, nobody in the, in the Bureau follows it. So it's bigger than just a, they're not, you know, that there seems to be this double standard when it comes to Republicans, which, by the way, I think there is. And I know I've gotten some heat for that because, um, you know, it sounds like a partisan point. I think it's a factual point at this point. Mm -hmm. And if I could, let me just demonstrate why I think um, here's how it's a double standard, because we don't find out about Dianne Feinstein's driver being a Chinese spy until after the issue is resolved. She gets a defensive briefing. She fires him. It's over. So, you know, it's not really a political hit for her. Whereas Matt Gates, we are told there's been leaks, is being investigated for child sex trafficking, and he has yet to be indicted. It's been over a year. Mm -hmm. So we find out a, a lot of the time about investigations that are ongoing into Republicans, which then cause a massive media feeding frenzy. And then when it's Eric Swalwell or Dianne Feinstein or other Democrats, we don't find out about it until it's over. Now, that to me is a double standard. It's weaponizing the information or the fact of the investigation in order to cast a cloud over someone. And by the way, ironically, this is what, you know, the, the Hillary Clinton supporters and Hillary Clinton claimed was done to her in 2016. That, you know, James Comey reopens an investigation uh, with less than two weeks to go. And by the way, he does clear her two weeks, two days before the election, but still he reopens it. Um, and that just, just having that out there, mm -hmm. uh, was enough to sort of class a cloud and, and it cost her, you know, the election in a very close year. Um, well, that's kind of what has been done to Trump and Trump supporters for the last six years mm -hmm. that we, we get, we get allegations. Oh, it's nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago or, you know, anonymous sources say it involves human intelligence or whatever, and everyone's imaginations run wild. And MSNBC, uh, CNN, will feature f people who are supposed to have a lot of public trust, former intelligence officials, former senior FBI officials, former Justice Department officials, who then go on to sort of speculate these wild scenarios where the president might be selling you know, secrets to foreign powers or whatever it is. And we have, it's, it's based on nothing. And mm -hmm. that's why it might very well be that they really got the goods this time. And if they do, and I see those facts and it's presented in a court of law and he's indicted, I'll believe it. Or, I'll, you know, I will evaluate it then, but I'm not going to go on that. Again. I mean, you know, fool me once, mm -hmm. you know, but this would be like fooling me seven, 17 times, you know, and it's like, come on. So, so tell me, uh, from your perspective, where do things stand with this Mar-a-Lago raid? Uh, you know, things have come out in the past 
uh, week or so, you know, in terms of, of additional information. But has anything really come out that has changed your sort of initial reaction to it? Um, I would like, I really need to know more about the mm -hmm. nature of this dispute with the National Archive because we don't know what the information is. All we know is what some of the documents are marked with various levels of classification. Again, I don't know what that means. It could be that Trump has this stuff that wasn't yet declassified that would further vindicate him on Russiagate, which we know he's been obsessed with. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying that that is. It could be that. And then I would view it one way. Or it could be, uh, you know, agent lists, you know, in Latin America. What the hell was he doing with that? Or it could be memorabilia from briefings or his, his presidency, which he wants to one day incorporate into a museum. We cannot know just based on how classified the information is. I'm banging my head against the wall because everybody's writing these stories right now about, you know, the latest on like, well, there were 16 boxes and they would have included at least one document that was top secret special compartment. I'm like, but that doesn't tell us anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm not. And, and in addition to all of that, the federal government has a terrible track record of claiming that certain disclosures are going to be in, you know, incredibly harmful when they're not. See the Nunes memo. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that I'm that I think I mean, I, I on Twitter, I'm a little looser with it, but I'm I'm still I'm not going to go along with it until you show me what everything. And by the way, it's also interesting that it's not clear that they they are going to indict Trump, at least based on some of the latest, uh, you know, reporting in The New York Times. And I'm not taking anything away from the. I mean, it's 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 obviously this is a story, and the and the and the 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 raid of Mar-a-Lago is a story. Um, but usually, you would see that kind of search warrant, and then you would see charges filed fairly soon after. The fact that we haven't seen that uh, is, to me, like another red flag. How often do we run into that issue where uh, government officials announce that to release some form of information would be incredibly damaging to the country, and then it turns out that it would just be incredibly damaging to them. <laughs> um, yeah. The, well, they have no, they have very little credibility. There's yeah. and there's also like this other issue which I've been writing about for years about overclassification, mm -hmm. and you know this is the tendency of the national security bureaucracy to try to want to create more state secrets, and they can't protect all of them as we've seen because we have all these massive disclosures. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I mean, if you want to get to the church committee, this was in the 1970s and Senator Frank Church had hearings where he went through a lot of stuff that the CIA and the FBI and the U.S. intelligence community were involved in that had they kept from the American people. And there were everything from like assassination plots to, you know, extraordinary kind of the breadth of, of the surveillance of American citizens. And this was prompted because there was a lot of unauthorized disclosures in the early 1970s, whether it was the Quakers who broke into an FBI annex in Media, Pennsylvania, or it was what's known as the Family Jewels, which Seymour Hersh published in the New York Times. Um, but there, there were a series of these kinds of disclosures. And so, you know, Congress really had no choice. They had to kind of get ahead of it. And it would, turned out, in my view, you know, traditionally conservatives were very much against the church committee. Mm -hmm. But I actually think it had in some ways, I mean, because of the Church Committee, we have the current oversight of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, although they certainly have not really been uh, all-stars recently. Yeah. 
Um, but also the FISA court, again, that's been proven to be less of a protection to civil liberties as we once thought it was. But at least there were some reforms that came out of it. And it seems to me like we have to start thinking through that kind of thing again, because mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd imagine, Ben, that as I read you, you're probably where I am. There are real threats out there. There are people who want to, you know, there are child sex traffickers and Russian spies and, you know, Chinese agents. All of that's real. And we want yeah. the FBI to be, you know, foiling that, that, yeah. that and, and continuing to, you know, investigate organized crime and all the other things that the FBI does. But we can't have that if half the country doesn't think that they have any kind of legitimacy or that they are completely politicized. Um, let's go out on this. For your average uh, consumer of media, there is enormous frustration, and I hear it all the time uh, from viewers, that they look at their screens and they see the likes of Brennan and Clapper and Comey and McCabe and Strzok and all of these other people who show up time and again, uh, and many others who are asked to weigh in on these things and treated basically as if they are uh, they're just experts, you know, they're, they're experts coming in to weigh in with their unbiased opinion about the things that are going on. Uh, when, you know, any, uh, smart media viewer know that knows that is not the case. Uh, isn't this, aren't we reaching a certain point where like all of these people, whether they seem to realize it or not, are doing things that are, and saying things that are damaging, their own interests, if their interest is to defend the institutions that they were once part of and protect them against some kind of, of uh, you know, burn it all down uh, or aggressive reform approach. Yeah, it's sort of like would be like, uh, and now for a look at the markets, here's Bernie Madoff. You know, it's like <laughs> exactly. at a certain point, especially with Peter Strzok, who, you know, has the rare distinction of being both in charge of the Hillary email investigation and the Russia the initial Russia investigation. Uh, yeah, it's I, I'm really at a loss, Ben. I don't understand it. I do think it's damaging, um, and it's not to say they have a right to. And there's obviously an audience for it. So mm-hmm. you know, to a certain extent, I mean, people are going to kind of get what they want. But that, that's the thing is that if you're going to sort of hold out as you know brian stelter recently left cnn but like he was like you know we have to hold them accountable and if you're going to sort of put on this cloak of i'm not just in it you know for the clicks i'm in it because i believe in journalism holding people accountable then you can't have you know andrew mccabe who by the way is uh, the inspector general horowitz found him that he lied repeatedly during an investigation having to do with the leaks of stuff about hillary clinton you can't have Andrew McKay be a paid contributor to CNN and then simultaneously say, we're just the news guys and we're trying to hold everyone accountable. And we need big national news organizations to be news organization. And just it's it's not like they, you can have opinion on that, but you have to also have the ability to sort of say, wait a second. We were told that this was like the president was a was a Russian asset. And it turns out he wasn't a Russian asset. And oh, and now we're learning that the Hillary Clinton campaign actually had an open door to the FBI to not only give them the dossier, but to plant these other stories with this white paper having to do with the Alpha Bank, which I thought should have got more attention to basically kind of like gin up investigations into 
her rival opponent. Well, isn't that what Trump was trying to do in the Ukrainian phone call with Zelensky? You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing. It's like, I want, I'm going to use my, my power. I mean, listen, she was out of office at the time. But the idea and that, that sort of incestuousness of the, the institutions where, like, a former FBI lawyer named Sussman, who is working for the Clinton campaign but has an office in an FBI annex and is editing the press release about the Russians hacking the DNC, that stinks to me. Mm-hmm. And it's not okay. And there has to be, like, lines that are drawn. And the media, the, the, the press, journalism, has to call that out and say, wait a second, that's not okay. This is a scandal, too. But we don't have that. And I think it's because that something happened with Trump. He kind of has this ability to turn his, his, uh, his opponents, the people who hate him, into versions of him. Yes, so they, they, do, now they have... do everything they accuse him of doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not the big, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a Trump fan. I didn't vote for him in 2016. I didn't vote for him in 2020. I think not. what he did after the election was really awful. So you're not talking, but I'm not in the sense of, an, I'm not like a never Trumper the way, you know, the, the bulwark is. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm not saying it as like a fan of Trump. I'm just saying you kind of yeah. look at this and like every you have to have a, one set of rules for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's clearly not what we've had. That's what's so frustrating. Eli, like, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I wanted to give you a little bit of perspective on what I think is happening in the current situations regarding the 2022 midterms. There have been a couple of different developments in recent weeks regarding the improvement of Joe Biden's standing in a number of different polls. And this has obviously led to a number of swing uh, seat Democrats, uh, vulnerable Democrats, embracing the president in ways that they had not previously. This is, you know, raising concerns in some corners among Republicans. But I also think it's only natural. The reality is that there was always going to be some kind of improvement when it came to the American economy, away from the doldrums of the spring. Uh, when you saw enormously heightened uh, inflation, high gas prices, an economy that really seemed to be headed in the ba- in a bad direction. I think a lot of Republicans just thought they could sit back on their laurels, not really have to do anything, uh, and ultimately win in November. The reality, of course, is that that's not the way that politics works. You are going to always have to advance some kind of case to be made against the other side in order to achieve victory. And that's one of the reasons why I think Republicans need to really press their advantage in a lot of different areas uh, that don't have to do with the economy. The economy is there as an issue. It's going to be a top priority for your average voter. And I think that you know certainly they know how to talk about it. But they also need to know how to talk about issues like immigration, issues like concerns about education and the like, the the increased and and potential backsliding towards uh, COVID protocols when it comes to public education is an item of increasing concern uh, for a lot of different areas across the country. And I think that they also need to lean into this ridiculous, uh, illegal, and uh, absolutely abhorrent approach to student loan forgiveness that the Biden administration and the White House have engaged in. Uh, I think that if they press their advantages in these areas, 
if they add a couple of other hot button issues, particularly I think if you are in uh, areas where it matters, the issue of increased crime and violence uh, in inner cities and creeping out into the suburbs, I think that this is all a situation that really does uh, absolutely stand to benefit Republican opponents of the current administration. But they're not going to be able to just sit back and say, because I'm a Republican, you should vote for me because inflation is bad, the economy is is uh, morose, uh, and uh, and gas prices are still much higher than they ought to be. That was always going to be fool's gold. Uh, and I think that Republicans have ought to have learned by this point uh, that it's not going to be something that the media is automatically going to let them run with. That's too easy. They're going to have to lean into these hot button issues, uh, make them a bigger priority, uh, and raise them as issues that ought to be responded to by their Democratic opponents if they want to retake the House and have a hope of taking the Senate. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray.